Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show, please go to our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. On today's show we are going to talk about the Spanish Civil War and Irish involvement on the pro-Franco side. So John, what was the Spanish Civil War? Well, the Spanish Civil War was a brutal war, three-year war in Spain from 1936 to 39, with probably about half a million people killed, although there isn't a definitive count yet. Between the government of the Spanish Republic, the left-wing government, uh, the Popular Front, and a military coup essentially led in the end by Francisco Franco and the forces of the right, who after only six months really or less of a, a left-wing government decided that it was intolerable and launched a, a rebellion against it. They hoped to take power immediately by a swift kind of seizure of power but due to resistance uh, by some loyal elements of the army and the police but generally by uh, left-wing uh, workers militias so the government uh, armed the, the union militias and um, also Basque nationalists and Catalan nationalists resisted the coup and it, and it developed into into a bitter and brutal war. Now, that might be just a part of the history of Spain, but what the Spanish Civil War developed into was an ideological war, an international war. So it was viewed at the time and is still viewed by some people as a kind of a crusade. Um, on one side, uh, fascism against anti-fascism, that's the left-wing view. On the right-wing side, particularly at the time in Ireland, was viewed as a literally a crusade of Christianity against communism. So, you were faced with this situation where people had divided the world into black and white, both in Spain and, and outside of Spain. Um, they believed they were fighting for you know for the forces of good against the forces of evil, and this is part of what made it such such a brutal war. So, one of the features of the war was the high number of civilians who were murdered essentially when. I'll call the Francoist forces, they called themselves the Nationalist forces, and took over a part of Spain. They would um, cleanse, and they used that term, the rear areas, the civilian areas of supporters of, of the Republic and of the Popular Front. And this included people like school teachers who had uh, participated in literacy campaigns, included members of left-wing or Republican parties. It included union members, as well as, you know, radical leftists, but they, they were taken out and, and shot and, and dumped in mass graves, and the graves are still being excavated today. According to Paul Preston's figures, Paul Preston, the historian of, of Spain and of the Civil War, there were up to 150,000 civilian executions on the, the mm-hmm. uh, perpetrated by the Francoist forces. And on the other side, particularly once the war broke out, there was also a great deal of killing on, in the Republican zone, so let's not romanticise that side. So there was about 7,000 clergy killed. So the, the left wing in Spain was very anti-clerical. They associated the church with the great landowners and with the right wing. And one of the first things the Republic did when it came into existence in 1931 was to separate church and state. Sometimes in the early days of the Republic, they were probably needlessly provocative. Like For example, they would ban uh, religious processions. They would make them apply for a permit. They would not recognize um, religiously performed weddings or funerals. You know, they would rebury people in a civil ceremony, you know, stuff that was needlessly provocative probably in the early days of the Republic. But the, the upshot was once the civil war broke out, I mean, the, the clergy certainly got blamed um, and 7,000 priests and monks and nuns were, were killed. 
but also, you know, right-wing supporters or perceived right-wing supporters were killed. Preston, again, whose book, The Spanish Holocaust, I'm relying on here, makes the point that whereas in the Francoist zone this was policy, you know, there was, in the Republican zone, it was more the case of when the Civil War broke out and the government was forced to arm all the militias of, on the left-wing side, that there was kind of chaos. Mm. And one thing, for example, the anarchists, who were a big force in Spain, they didn't believe in prisons, for example. So one of the first things when the Civil War broke out and when they, you know, the anarchists sort of seized power in, in many parts of Spain, in Catalonia especially, and they opened the prisons because they believed everyone who was in prison was a victim of capitalist society. So they let out all the criminals and a lot of them went on, on a kind of crime spree. Um, but it, during the Battle of Madrid, which it, it touches on the Irish story a little bit, when it appeared that the Francoist forces were going to take Madrid in November 1936, all the, um, the right-wing military officers and members of right-wing parties who were in the prison in Madrid, they, they feared that there would be a fifth column, actually the term comes from that time, that they would rise up at the same time as the military attack from outside. And so the prisoners were transferred to Valencia, but many of the prisoners were taken out um, on, in a place called Paraguayos de Jarama, and they were executed, about one, one to 2,000 were just shot in, in mass shootings there. And Santiago Carrillo, who was later the head of the Communist Party, is, is widely blamed for that, whether he always denied it. But, you know, atrocities committed on both sides, but on a ratio of three to one, in favour, in disfavour, if you like, of the Francoist forces. They killed, you know, three civilians for every killed in the Republican zone. And Preston again makes the point that once the government, the Republican government managed to re-establish control after about the first year of the war and it got its own army in the go and disarmed to a large extent the militias or incorporated them into the popular army, as it was known, that these things stopped on the Republican side. Whereas when the Francoists solidified their control over his own, the killings intensified. And just one more point to make about that, actually, before we move on to kind of the Irish angle is, today in Spain, like a lot of this, it, it, it's still very explosive stuff. And whenever the socialists come to power, one of the things they do is they give permission again to reopen these, the search for all these graves and to, to exhume all these corpses. Um, so it's a big issue between the left and the right. And when the right wing, the popular party in Spain, comes to power, they immediately shut this down. And it, it, this is, over the last 10, 15 years, this has been happening with regularity. But another thing is, in Catalonia today, which you know is a place where many people want independence, they're kind of retelling the civil war and they're tell, saying it was a war between Catalonia and Spain, and that's just not the case at all. And one measure of this is, if you look at the body count, so the repression in Franco Spain was by far the worst in Andalusia, in the southern province, in Seville, Granada, hmm. where about 50,000 people were executed, mostly in the first year of the war. And that, and that was a pure class thing. It was mainly on landowners against landers and, you know, bosses against workers and so on. But that's around 10 times more executions than took place in Catalonia, once the Francoists took that in, in 1939. And actually the Republican killings, because it was held by the Republicans for most of the war, were about the same in Catalonia. So, and also, in, in, in the same is true in the Basque country, while there was certainly repression and there was executions, including, incidentally, of Basque clergy, because it was the one place where the church was on the side of the Republic. It, it's nowhere near the level of somewhere like uh, Andalusia or Extremadura. And the difference is that the, the class conflict, mostly the rural class conflict, was far worse in those areas. So at the time that the Spanish Civil War was more of a left-wing, right-wing thing, and more of a religious versus secular thing, than a, it was also a nationalist against centre thing, but much less so. So that's, it's misremembered nowadays, I think, by Catalan nationalists. Well, what was the reaction in Ireland? Like, at what stage did the conflict in Spain start to get mass interest in Ireland? Well, right away, and there's a number of reasons for that. So one, 
aspect of the conflict, as I've said, was secular versus anti-clerical, or clerical versus anti-clerical, let's say. And in Ireland, one of the things you had seen over the, the late 20s and 30s was the church actually re-establishing its power. So the, the, search, the church in Ireland, the Catholic Church since independence, um, was initially very concerned because they felt, you know, at the time of the nationalist uh, struggle in Ireland that they lost all the control, people weren't listening to them. So they denounced, you know, for example, the IRA in the War of Independence, they denounced their actions, and they denounced the anti-treaty side in the Civil War in, in Ireland. And a significant portion of the population just didn't listen to them. They were very concerned about that. And what you see in independent Ireland is the church really trying to reassert its control. And it's, it's able to use the, the independent state to a degree um, to do this. Like, and they clamp down. You've written about this, Cathal. They clamp down on jazz, for example, mm-hmm. and a lot of things, and, and extramarital sex and so on, or try to. But another thing that they did was in 19, about 1931, the Catholic Church internationally got very concerned about um, anti-clericalism. Now, they talked about Russia and communism. Which, which was fair enough in a sense because religion was essentially illegal, not formally illegal, but in the Soviet Union. But also they talked about places like Mexico, which we've forgotten about mm-hmm. now. Mexico tried to separate church and state, and so did Spain in 1931. And so, and the, in popular narrative, this was like communism against Christianity, but mm-hmm. I mean, neither Spain nor Mexico were, were communist. But in Ireland, the upshot is that when the civil war in Spain broke out, it was perceived and it was presented as a war of communism against Christianity. So the communists had risen up and they were they were butchering the clergy and that they were burning down churches. Now, now that's partially true. I mean, but what people were being told in Ireland was 300,000 uh, clergy and believers had been killed by the, by the Reds in the first months of the war. And that's, that's a vast exaggeration. The figures about 7,000 churches were burnt down, certainly, but you know, not, not, nothing like on that scale. And the other angle of the civil war, you know, the democracy against military rule, basically, regions against centre, left against right, classic, uh, upper class against lower class. This wasn't so much reported in Ireland. And even people like James Hogan, who was um, the head of history in UCC, you know, he addressed mass meetings in Cork City, for example, you know, and he, and he said that this isn't about fascism against anti-fascism, it's, it's about Christianity against communism. Um, Owen O'Duffy, who we'll talk about, mm-hmm. who the former Garda commissioner, at this point, ex-Pluture leader, but he said, again, it's, uh, Odofi was really a fascist by this point, by conviction, but Odofi said it's not a war of fascism against anti-fascism, it's a war of Christ against anti-Christ. And there was an organisation called the Irish Christian Front, um, which, interestingly, the, the, the actual church, I believe, didn't like that much, but it was, you know, claiming to be on behalf of Christianity or Catholicism against communism, and they would organise mass rallies. There's a famous picture of Grand Parade, I think, or Patrick Street mm-hmm. in Cork, where thousands of people are holding their hands above their head in the sign of the cross, after the outbreak of war in Spain, declaring that their, you know, their support for, for Franco, essentially for that side, in the civil war. So initially, the, the opinion in Ireland is overwhelmingly pro-nationalist or pro-Francoist in, in Ireland. Well, as you said there, with the, a lot of the attacks on the church being needlessly provocative, if you remove that angle from the conflict, there's a lot of things from the Republican side that people in Ireland would have been sympathetic towards. And one of the issues would be land relations and land ownership, particularly looking at somewhere like Ireland. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, I mean, I recently read two uh, memoirs from the time. So Owen O'Duffy's himself, um, his, his memoir is titled Crusade in Spain. Mm-hmm. And um, Joseph McCabe, who was a priest, he was the rector of the Irish College in Salamanca. And uh, both of them remark on the fact that, um, that it was a pity that the church, both of them said this, had not supported land reform in Spain. So it was one of the 
the Republic really tried very minor social reforms, and one of them was land reform, and it was opposed tooth and nail by landowners, but backed mm. completely by the Catholic Church mm. in Spain. And both of them, even though both of those people were, were supported of Franco, don't get me wrong, but both of them remarked on this, mm. that it was a shame that that, that that hadn't happened. Certainly, I mean, among the, among the left-wing kind of community in Ireland, or, or the Republican left-wing community especially, the people, you had this phenomenon where people who had been through the IRA, particularly the anti-treaty IRA, a significant minority of them graduated towards kind of basically communism, whether through Sarah and Pater O'Donnell or, you know, into the actual Communist Party, which was refounded in the early 1930s. And, th- and certainly they would have viewed the Spanish Republic as, you know, a friend of the Irish Republic, as they saw mm. it, and, uh, you know, that, that they were fighting for an kind of an egalitarian Ireland, and so was the Spanish Republic. So, I mean, it, it was possible to make propaganda from that point of view in Ireland, but at certainly at the start of the war, it was drowned out by this deafening kind of chorus mm. of, of defend Christianity against the Reds. Apart from the religious angle as well, like the national side in Spain, they're like right-wing, landlord, uh, the crown, aristocrats. They're hard sell. They would have been if they weren't Catholics, put it that way, yeah. I mean, another thing, interesting angle on that is Odofi when he did when he did go to Spain he met with Franco and he, he worked out a series of conditions under which he'd bring men from Ireland to fight for Franco mm-hmm. and one of them was that he wouldn't serve against the Basque nationalists mm-hmm. and in his memoir Odofi goes back on this and he says he didn't understand the situation at the time and the Basque nationalists were more like the Ulster Unionists you know they wanted to partition Spain and stuff but at the time you know there, there was a certain amount of sympathy for the, the Basques and certainly uh, um, and possibly the Catalans but more so the Basques the Basques were very religious at the time well, didn't some Basque clerics come to Ireland to give lectures? They did, and that's a little bit later. We might come to that a bit later. That's one of the reasons why this fervor for Franco doesn't actually last. You know, is that people start to see the kind of the, mm. the, the grey zone. Was there much support for the Spanish Republic within the mainstream Irish press? No, very little. I mean, um, what you find is the Irish Independent and so on are, are very pro-Franco initially. Now they moderated a little bit. And the Irish Times is kind of moderately pro Franco, I think, at the start, and then they they move away from that, and um, because you know they don't have the Catholic angle. It's more of a Protestant paper at the time, uh, and the Irish press again, kind of moderately pro Franco. And Fianna Fáil, I mean, there's certain elements of Fianna Fáil would certainly have been sympathetic to the Republican. The actual government under Emma de Valera, um, signed the Non-Intervention Pact, and and in February nineteen thirty seven, after, um, contingents had left to fight for both sides, you know, banned further contingents to, uh, from going to Spain but again at the start of the war I mean it, it, it's one of the aspects of the war in, at the start is that there's not only in Ireland and not only due to the Catholic angle there's a great deal of reporting from the Republican zone where people see the atrocities in that zone whereas the press is very strictly controlled in the, the Franco zone why because it's a military control zone hmm. and the, the Falange or the Falange in Spanish but the fascist party you know, they're not allowing people access to the, the massacres that they're doing. So there's a great disproportion in the reporting at the start of the war. And it's one of the reasons actually why Britain and France, especially France, where there's also a popular front government, mm-hmm. don't get involved is because of this, you know, there's much more widespread reporting of Republican wrongdoing at the start of the war. And it only becomes clear a little bit later mm. that, that actually it's worse than either zone. And in terms of, uh, you know, fundraising for the Spanish church or Sp- Spanish victims of the the republican the red terror the red terror was that was that an issue from the start in Ireland yeah I mean and there was again the Irish Christian Front 
and collected a load of money. Paddy Belton, who was a TD from Dublin, uh, travelled to Spain. But according to McCabe, I mentioned Joseph McCabe, the, the priest, uh, Belton uh, seems to have kept a lot of the money for himself, actually. So like he, he wanted to attach all sorts of conditions to ha- towards handing over to, to Franco. And in the end, he seems to have kept some of it. So, um, you know, as with all things where people collect money, it's always a bit nefarious. I mean, just one thing I, I think just I should mention as well before we, we move on is like, so it's presented in Ireland as a crusade against communism, atheistical communism, as it's always called. Now, just to be fair about this, the situation of communism, is, it, it, it's a little bit complicated. So the Popular Front government is dominated at the start by what's called the, the Republican Party, led by a man named Azania. And then you've got the Socialist Party, um, which is led by um, a guy called Largo Caballero. And Largo Caballero is a guy who actually, he's given to extreme rhetoric, talking about revolution, but actually, you know, the policies are not revolutionary. And the Communist Party is tacked on. The Communist Party has no ministries in the government. It's supporting the government in Parliament. But the Communist Party is, you know, very much the third, and might even be the fourth after the regional nationalists, supporting the popular front government. But once the war breaks out, the only major power that's prepared to sell arms to the Republic, or give arms and military aid to the Republic, is the Soviet Union. And this is obviously funneled through the Communist Party of Spain. Mm. And they also organise the international volunteers, the international brigades. Now, not all the volunteers are communists, but they're all they're all filtered through the communist system. So you have a strange situation where the communist party becomes extremely powerful in the Republic um, during the civil war. And a lot of volunteers who go to Spain to fight for the Republic are communists or, or, or sympathize with the communists. But I mean, even at the end of the Republic, the prime minister is a socialist, uh, Negrin. Now he's close to the communists, but weirdly enough, I mean, the communist program in Spain is not to make the social revolution, which is one reason they fall out with the, with the anarchists and some of the left wing communists it's it's a little bit complicated that communists were important in the spanish civil war but it's not the case that the republic was communist you know that's that's mm-hmm. false well i think a lot of people will be influenced by the ken loach land of freedom that the communist party were actually quite reactionary yeah. and authoritarian in the spanish civil war whatever the truth of that may be well, look, I mean, that's, you know, in left-wing circles, I mean, these are, this debate is still going on as if it was 1936 again. But, uh, you know, having read a bit more about the Spanish Civil War, and I like Ken Loach's movie, but I'm not sure that stands up as well. Now, I'll say two things. Number one, this is the time of this great Stalinist terror in the Soviet Union, right? And, I mean, one of the things that Stalin does is he marks a party called the Poon, which is, he labels as a Trotskyist party for annihilation, and, and they do get rid of him, and they, they execute their leader, Andreas Nin. And this is part of the story of, of Ken Loach's movie, Land and Freedom. And it's also George Orwell's memoir of his time, because he was with the Pooh militia. And they also fight to some extent with the anarchists in Barcelona. But from the point of view of the Republic, because, you know, if you stand back from the international dimension of the left-wing debates, the Republic is about, you know, maintaining some sort of democratic society, you know. And what the communists are saying is that these left-wing militias and union militias never party out from their own militia is a disaster. And that's objectively absolutely true. And if you look also... At, at all the atrocities committed by people who were on whom there was no oversight I mean a little bit like say the black and tans and the auxiliaries in the early days in Ireland but but worse you know it was quite true that they had to be formed into a popular army and whereas the boom is annihilated and that's partly a Stalinist thing yes the anarchists actually take ministries in the government which seems bizarre anarchists as ministry but there you go and anarchist units were incorporated into the popular army and, and their, their leaders were made officers mm. for example one of the senior leaders in the Madrid front, a guy named Cipriano Mera, was, was an anarchist. Mm. You know, strange as it might seem. It's, so yeah, I mean, the, the left-wing version is the communists betrayed the revolution, but 
like if, if the goal was to maintain the republic and to have you know and to win the war even the communist part communist policy was right for my money mm. you know I, I'm not I'm not sure how much that influenced Irish people at the time actually as opposed to left wingers since well, was there much contact between the Spanish government and the Irish government leading up to the civil war not, not that I know of no I mean relations weren't great because of um this kind of anti-clerical bed. But one thing, again, you know, I'm putting a lot of context, but that, I guess that's okay. Mm. It's history. So the Republic was founded in 1931, and previously there was a military dictator, Primo de Rivera. And the parties of the moderate left held power for the first three years of the Republic, 31 to 33. And then the right wing, a, a quite quite right wing party called the uh, SEDA, um, held power from 1933 to 36 until they lost the election, February 36. So again, this idea like the Republic was communist, or it was a Soviet Republic, which is what Odofi wrote in his memoir, you know, it's totally wrong. You know, there was, there was a, what the Republic tried to do in terms of, and I mean, a lot of the stuff the Republic was trying to do was very moderate. Land reform, literacy campaigns, you know, autonomy to the regions, fairly moderate stuff, all that's reversed, you know, under the right-wing government of 33 to 36. So, like, I'm not sure what the relations were, frankly, but like... Um, once the civil war started, um, you know, the only Irish representative, Leo Kearney, was certainly based in the Franco zone, and he, he was certainly sympathetic to the, to the mm-hmm. Franco side. Mm-hmm. It's funny to think that, like, it's almost 50 years after the land war in Ireland, or more than 50 years, mm. and uh, Spain are, are so far behind in terms of issues with land ownership. Yeah, well, one difference is that Britain was a very rich power, you know, it was a rich, powerful empire as well, where the Spanish Empire was in terminal decline. And um, doing land reform while paying compensation requires a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one difference. And a lot, of, a lot of bishops were very big landowners. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the church owned quite a lot of land as well. Mm-hmm. So one of the big players in um, the Irish reaction to the Spanish Civil War is Owen O'Duffy. Can you tell us who Owen O'Duffy was? Owen O'Duffy was uh, from County Monaghan. Um, he rose to prominence during the uh, independence struggle. Uh, he became, first of all, a Gaelic League organiser, and then, you know, Sinn Féin, then IRA, became the IRA commander at County Monaghan. Wasn't, which wasn't one of the, the bloodiest, certainly, parts of the country, but O'Duffy was, was quite an effective commander, quite ruthless. He shot quite a number of people as informers. Or had them shot. Um, he later, but he was kind of talent spotted really by Michael Collins, and he was seconded to GHQ of the IRA. Took the pro treaty side mainly because he was pro Collins. Um, in the Civil War, um, served briefly as a general in the National Army, and then became Garda Commissioner. Duffy was representative really of a number of people from the pro treaty, uh, side that came out of the Irish Civil War, with really quite an authoritarian bent. So like they're the people couldn't be trusted because look what happened the minute we got freedom mm. they started fighting each other they started defining the government wreck, wrecking the bridges you know burning houses the people weren't to be trusted and, and O'Duffy was more authoritarian than many of his colleagues who were in the government mm. of the common and now governments of the 20s in that they enacted special legislation which allowed for things like military tribunals to try civilians uh, internal without trial execution although there weren't any executions um, after the civil war except for you know convicted of murder but O'Duffy wanted these things permanently he wanted them put into the constitution um, and O'Duffy was very concerned about the rise of Fianna Fáil the anti-treaty slightly constitutional party as Sean Lamas called it um, 
But in, you know, in 1931, when it, it appears that Fianna Fáil might win the next election, I mean, O'Duffy looks into a coup with sympathetic members of the Guardi and of the army. So when Fianna Fáil came to power, um, O'Duffy was not sacked immediately, but sacked for leaking information to, to James Hogan, who I've just mentioned before, kind of a, for a right-wing really intellectual by that point, because Hogan was writing this pamphlet called Could Ireland Become Communist? And O'Duffy and people liked him believed that um, with the IRA increasingly kind of left-wing, uh, De Valera was going to be a Kerensky figure. So the guy who preceded Lenin, who Lenin overthrew to, in the Russian Revolution. Uh, you know, and, and O'Duffy seems to believe that um, it, he, it might need a coup to, to prevent this happening, that he might need some sort of an authoritarian regime in Ireland to prevent Fianna Fáil from taking power and then losing power to a communist-inclined IRA. Now, of course, none of that happened, but he lost his job anyway as Guardian Commissioner, and he founded the Blue Shirt Movement, initially the Army Comrades Association, but it's a fascist style movement. Now, the debate will always go on where the Blue Shirts fascists. They were certainly fascists in style, in uniform, in berets, and in the fascist salute. O'Duffy and some of his acolytes, um, people like Ernest Blythe, did believe in, in fascism, corporatism, whatever you like to call it. Um, they did believe in authoritarianism. But O'Duffy, interestingly, was drinking heavily by this point. He was getting quite erratic. So he was the first leader, actually, of the Fine Gael party, which was this is often forgotten today. But he, uh, and, and Mainly by Fine Gael. Mainly by Fine Gael. Yeah. I mean, Fine Gael will tell you that uh, John Dillon was their first leader, I think. Uh, or W.T. Cosgrave. Or W.T. Cosgrave, yeah. yeah. But, um, he, he, but anyway, by the time we're talking about, by 1936, O'Duffy had been ousted as leader of Fine Gael for talking about invading Northern Ireland and, and for, you know, being behind a lot of kind of disorder, like a lot of rioting. And he'd also lost control of the Blue Shirt movement. So Ned Cronin had manoeuvred him out of the leadership of the Blue Shirts and O'Duffy had founded an even further right group called the, the National Corporate Party, the Green Shirts, mm. who were, you know, more or less openly fascist. And so when the Spanish Civil War broke out, I mean, O'Duffy's not in a great place. Like, you know, his personal life isn't great. He's drinking very heavily. He has lost his job as Guardian Commissioner. He has lost his political prestige and the kind of pro-treaty side of Irish politics. And what happened is uh, a Spanish aristocrat by the name of de la Sierra approached the Irish bishops for support. And, and Irish, the Archbishop, uh, McRory, reached out to O'Duffy. It's a little bit sinister that this might happen, really, mm -hmm. because, you know, O'Duffy's a fascist, right? No, but uh, for Irish volunteers to Spain, and O'Duffy, you know, has a big campaign, and he says that, that he has 10,000 volunteers ready to go to Spain to fight for Christianity uh, against communism. And it's, it's possible that he did get 10,000 people to sign a piece of paper. But O'Duffy went first. We, he tried to recruit um, our Irish army officers. He tried to recruit Hugo McNeil, who was a lieutenant colonel, a commander of a division, I think, of the Irish army. He didn't go in the end. In the end, the man who uh, commanded O'Duffy's force was Patrick Dalton, who was ex-IRA before the truce, uh, pro-treaty in the Civil War. He actually commanded the Special Infantry Corps, Mm. which was uh, like a public order unit of the army. It was for putting down land agitation and strikes uh, in the Civil War. Not great preparation for a conventional, a, a terrible conventional war like Spain. But, but why would somebody like Cardinal McCrory approach O'Duffy in the first place? Like at this stage, O'Duffy must be um, a busted flush to a, a lot of people. Like the, the years of... Um, his leadership of Fine Gael and the Blue Shirts must have made him seem like almost a buffoonish character at best. 
Uh, worse, just this, this disordered, violent, you, you know, just basically a bad leader. Yeah, I thought so, but I mean, that's maybe hindsight. I mean, the Duffy, the blue shirts are, are terribly popular. There's a lot of them. You know, there's possibly up to 30,000 mm. of them uh, at one point. And Duffy seems to be the, the coming man, you know, at, at a certain point in, say, 30, 33, 34. But in 36, definitely not. No, but I mean, you know, maybe people looked at that as a blip, you know, and, and um, the Spanish approach some of the archbishops, and the bishops are certainly on the, the Franco side, and they say, who's, you know, who's a prominent right-wing leader in Ireland? And they say, oh, we have the perfect man. Now, I'm, you know, I'm putting words in their mouth, but I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that's what they would have said. I, the, the affair in Spain probably hammered the nails into Adolfi's coffin as far as his re- public reputation was concerned, I suspect, yeah. which I, I guess we'll get on to. Well, you're saying there he, he went over to Spain. What happened when he first went over? So he went over to Spain via Liverpool with about 200 others. Um, and he met Franco and he, and he hammered out, you know, kind of heads of agreement. Under, they'd serve under Irish officers to be part of the Army of Africa. So Spain, Spain at the time still controlled Morocco and uh, recruited a lot of their best soldiers there. And they'd be part of the Spanish. The Irish contingent would be part of the Spanish Foreign Legion, which was um, a notoriously brutal unit. I mean, their motto was uh, Viva la Muerte, Long Live Death. But they would be commanded by Irish officers, not by Spanish officers. They wouldn't fight against the Basques. The Basques were nationalists and fellow Catholics. Mm-hmm. A group of 500 more men went travelled to Galway and they were picked up there by a German ship. Now, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this, but I mean, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy gave full military backing to the Franco side um, mm-hmm. during the Civil War. But they were picked up by a German ship flying the swastika and taken to Spain. Now, once, in, once they were in Spain, the... Um, there were 700-odd volunteers of Odofi's men were taken to Castries, which is a town near the Portuguese border in Extremadura. And, you know, it's here where Odofi himself uh, starts to display questionable leadership, let's say that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Odofi's diary, one of the things that he says is he travelled 10,000 miles inside Spain. So, he, you know, he visited Portugal, yeah. he visited Seville down south, where incidentally Odofi writes um, not a single man was trouble for his political opinions in Seville where there was like 12,000 executions by Chiepo de Llano who was a mm-hmm. murderous general who would get on the radio and say uh, Reds we are coming for you we're going to kill you and rape your wives but according to Odofi you know it was the happiest place in the world mm-hmm. anyway but whereas his, his men were supposedly getting trained and you know getting to shape in, in Caceres Odofi was travelling around Spain as a tourist you know and complaining about the food he didn't like the olive oil so how seriously Odofi really took this I don't know I mean Fergal McGarry argues in this excellent biography of Ono Duffy that Odofi was really using Spain to rehabilitate his reputation in Ireland and I think that that's probably the case and um, one of the things Odofi said is that the contingent he took to Spain should be made into a pipe band and taken on a propaganda tour of Spain which makes sense for raising your profile but not for winning the war right yeah now the men who went with Franco sorry the men who went with Odofi for Franco generally some of them were uh, certainly on the hard right, had been blue shirts or had been in Duffy, Odofi's party, the NCP. A lot of them were very young, 16, 17. I mean, the Department of Foreign Affairs in the National Archives, there's a great string of mothers um, from Kerry, from, from Condra in Dublin, from various places, saying, my son went off with Odofi and, and he's only a boy. Uh, can you please get him back? So there was a lot of people like that. And, and a lot of them genuinely believed they were going to fight against. Well, were people enthusiastic? Were, were the, the ranks filled up very quickly? Oh, they were, yeah. And I mean, there was another 700 waiting to go in County Waterford in Passage East, um, which is um, a little harbour down there, only the ship never turned up. So certainly, yeah, I mean, there could have been a lot more. Only um, Franco himself really 
wasn't that keen on it. I mean, it was good publicity, showing that they had foreign support, but, you know, yeah. they weren't that keen on it, really. Um, but the reality kind of sunk in. So first of all, in Caceres, like, they weren't terribly disciplined. Adolfi didn't take enough of an interest. They were drinking very heavily. They got on very badly with their chaplain, incidentally, a guy named uh, Mulrean, who would uh, force them to go to confession every day. Now, interestingly, again, it shows the difference between Irish Catholicism and Spanish Catholicism, whereas the Irish uh, volunteers were very religious and would go to Mass and go to confession. The Spanish officers uh, would look at them in contempt for doing this. And these are the nationalist Francoist officers. They said religion is only for women. Yeah. The Spanish macho man doesn't tell, us, tell anything to a priest. That's kind of interesting. But they, they were a little bit taken aback by that, but they were much more taken aback by every morning um, a lorry load of prisoners would arrive in Cassery Barracks and they would be machine good. You know, it's, and a number of volunteers left testimony about this. They would be lined up against the wall and the machine gun would be trained on them. They would start at their feet and it would work the way up their bodies so like it would you know, riddle them with bullets. And they said, you know, the prisoners would stand and they'd shout, Viva Madrid, because Madrid was, was holding out mm. under siege at the time. Uh, and then they'd be killed. Viva la Republica. Mm. Uh, and this is the reality of a war in Spain. You know, I, I looked up the... Um, Nowadays they do counts in Spain for the amount of people who were executed in these places and there's 650 executed in Cáceres, which is a provincial town, alone, you know. Yeah. Um, and this is the reality of the war in Spain and a lot of them are quite shocked by this. But Did it force any of them to reassess their views? It did, yeah. I mean, some of them, like Seamus McKee, for example, came back and he wrote a little memoir called uh, I Was a Franco Soldier, which was later published in the press in Ireland and he said, yeah, we fought for a bad cause. But um, some of them, like um, Morris Fennell, for example, who was from Rathkeel County, Limerick, uh, he wrote a memoir, which is, um, it's in uh, the archive in the University of Limerick in the Stradling Papers. Well, Morris Fennell wrote, um, well, we were shocked to see this and it was a terrible thing to see, but they must have been war criminals, you know. We were told later they were Russians and, you know, they were convicted of crimes and they got a fair trial. And he said, I would never have wanted want to have to participate in a firing squad, but if I was asked, I would have done it. You know, so that that's what they were told as well. Yeah. Is that what he wanted to believe? Of course it was. Yeah. I guess we all tell ourselves what we want to yeah. believe, huh? But they were taken to the front um, in February 1937, and uh, it's the time of the Battle of Harama. So the frontal assault kind of on Madrid failed. It was blocked by, by kind of fierce resistance in the city, in the outskirts of the city. So the next Francoist idea was to encircle Madrid. So they're going to cut the road between there and Valencia, where the, the government had been transferred to the Republican government. Um, the Battle of Harama is this huge battle, something on the side, kind of a First World War kind of thing. It's trench warfare. The Irish were sent to a place called Siempo Suelas, which is kind of a hilltop village, and it had recently been taken by Moroccan troops, um, the Moors as they called them. Um, and once they, they'd taken the village and they'd slaughtered the Republican garrison, there was bodies everywhere. One of the first things the Irish volunteers had to do when they got to the town was to, was to bury all the corpses. Um, but before they got to the town, they were advancing on what's called a sunken road, so a dirt road, um, and in battle formation. And they were seen by... Troops <clears throat> from the Canary Islands, Franco's troops, nationalist uh, troops, who assumed that they were Reds mm. because you know most of the foreign volunteers were on the other side. And there was an episode of what's now called friendly fire, very, very mis a very misleading term, friendly fire. They were fired on by their own side. There was a gun battle. Two of the Irishmen were killed and two of their Spanish um, attaches were killed. And there was a number of men killed on the other side as well. And that was their first con combat in Spain. In fact, their only face-to-face -face combat in Spain was with their own side. That must have been quite demoralising. But then they got to the town of Siempozuelos, which was totally destroyed from this battle, where the prisoners and the wounded had all been killed by, by the Moroccans, which was, sad to say, common, common practice. The churches had all been destroyed by the Republicans when they had occupied the town. Um, 
again, Maris Fennell said they must have been demonic or it was diabolical, the destruction. So they were really shocked by this. But, I mean, you can imagine putting themselves in their place. They'd gone to this war. None of them spoke the language mm. where there's horrendous things being done by both sides, but especially by their own side, frankly. You know, all the, you know, the, the bodies piled in the cellars were put there by their own side. Then they're in the trench line. Odofi um, was based in the rear in a town called Valdemoro, which is about 20 kilometers from the front, I think. And not enough interest, to say the least, was put into getting them food and getting them drink. And they were, they were under shell fire in the kind of a drip, drip, drip of casualties. But, you know, more of them were hospitalized in the end by disease, mm. you know, bad food, bad water, um, pneumonia, stuff like this. The effect as well, I suppose, of being under shell fire if you're not actual soldiers, if you're just civilian volunteers. Yeah, some of them have military experience, but not on that scale, probably. You know? Yeah. And to come across, like, dead bodies and witness all this, these executions, it must have had a dreadful effect on them emotionally and mentally. I'm sure it did. I mean, it couldn't, it couldn't but have done, right? But, you know, their performance from a military point of view wasn't great. So they were, uh, they were ordered to attack across the valley of the Harama River at this uh, hilltop village on the other side of the river called Tetulsia. And they advanced, there's 700 out of them now, so it's a, a, a full battalion and supported by various other units. So it's, it's a fairly big operation, but they leave the trenches, they start to advance across the valley. They come under shell fire from Tetulsia. They take about nine casualties. I think it's four killed, five wounded, something like that. Then, you know, they refused to advance any further. They returned to their, their trenches and they said, this place is impregnable. You can't mm. attack it. Well, it may well have been, but this is a war where these are not considerations. So the comparison mm. I make is on the other side. So the Irish volunteers who went on the other side, on the Republican side, mm. led by Frank Ryan, were, also, were absolutely on the other side of the valley at the time. And they had been a little bit earlier with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the American volunteers, ordered to attack a, a hilltop called Pinaron. And, you know, about half of them were killed and wounded. So out of 450, I think about 200 survived unscathed. And that's the kind of war you're talking about. Mm. Now, there's a danger here. You can say, like, oh, well, the ones who were prepared to be killed, they were right. They must have been right. That's dangerous, that thinking, you know. But the ones who were prepared to take heavy casualties and keep going understood what they were there for. Mm. In their minds, they, they were clear what they were there for and they were prepared to go through with it. I'm not sure the O'Duffy volunteers understood in the end very well why they were there what they were involved in uh, and were prepared to be killed for it in large numbers you know I, I think that's the difference but O'Duffy managed to get the orders cancelled and, and Franco and his commander on the front Yagüe, um, were taken aback by this so, you know this didn't happen with the Spanish Foreign Legion viva la muerte long live death you know it's in the, it's in mm. the motto they were first of all taken to another a quieter section of the front called Mariosa. but discipline started to break down and there's a lot of things which you know you only see glimpses of so there's Soldiers had been beaten up by officers in Caceres. Apparently, it's a dispute between the blue shirts and the green shirts. It's, it's an inter-party dispute. And there's shots fired at officers in the trenches in, in Mariosa. There, there's um, disobedience. Yagüe sends a report to, to Franco saying, uh, the military efficiency of this unit is nil. He says there's been aggressions from soldiers against officers. They won't follow orders. They won't do what they're told. So is he an officer by green shirts? But... It seems so. It yeah. seems so, yeah. I mean, Odofi says that there was no politics in the brigade, but... Mm. Yeah, it, it, it does seem that way, yeah. Um, and if you look at O'Duffy's objective, was probably to rehabilitate himself and get his own party back going again. Mm. You know, that's probably the case. Um, but it also explains why O'Duffy doesn't want heavy casualties. You know, he wants, he wants his supporters to come back. Yeah. Now, at one point, an officer named Dermot O'Sullivan, in a dispute with the Spanish officers, said uh, he was going to change sides. 
And, and Fergal McGarry, again, I must quote directly, because it's a great line, he said people had been shot for much less than in Spain at the time than this. So after that point, you know, and after Yagüe's report to Franco, the unit was disarmed and they were sent back to Cáceres, to, to the rear area, the depot. And, you know, a lot of them left diaries and so on, which are in the University of Limerick, uh, collected by Robert Stradling, and, and they all say, you know, the lads were fed up, we wanted to go home, we'd had enough. There was a lot of them hospitalised for, for sickness um, in Cáceres. And, and in Cáceres, also, there was more executions, you know, so it was an ongoing thing, you know. It was like a routine thing. And at this point, O'Duffy requested that they be sent home, um, and Franco was more than happy to to a seat. Um, you know, as I said, Yagwe, his, his commander on the in that particular front, had said they should be split up into other units or they should be commanded by Spanish military officers or they should be sent home. And you can almost imagine an asterisk beside the, you know, yeah, yeah. beside the sent home. So, but I don't know if he requested to be sent home. And what he says in his memoir was, well, we signed up for six months and we did our six months and we did our duty and we returned home. And because of De Valera, who wouldn't allow any more to come out then, you know, that was the end of it. So what was O'Duffy's reputation like at this stage? Very bad. The I, mean, no, the, I mean, the Spanish, well, among the, the Franco side, of, you know, I, they, were, they were happy to be rid of him. On the Republican side, he was a hero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a great saboteur. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the Republicans took that much notice. Yeah. I guess they had other priorities. Among, uh, there was a great deal of glee, though, among Irish Republicans, that O'Duffy, who was a hate figure of theirs for many years, had, had come unstuck so badly in Spain. And I mean, there's very... So there's various legends. So the only people that fought with their own side, it's kind of true. But there's another another legend is the only brigade that came back with more men than they went out with. You know, and this story comes from a number of Englishmen who volunteered for Franco, managed to get stowed away with them so they could leave the war and come back. Yeah. Um. But I mean, they, they about thirty five of them were killed in Spain, either killed or died of wounds or sickness. So you know that's that's a little bit, and more than were wounded. So that that's a little bit um you know, glib. Well, how much of uh their exploits? were reported back in Ireland. Oh, a lot, yeah. And no, it was really, and at first it was reported uh, very kind of positively, especially like in the Irish Independent and so on, which traditionally would have been a pro, let's say more, more right-wing newspaper, even going back to the days with the lockout and, and the civil war and so on. But um, there, as I said, there is a change. So first of all, I mean, people realise they're not, they're not doing great deeds in Spain. That starts to become clear. But also, I mean, the Spanish Civil War changes. Like, there's an offensive against the Basque country in the north of Spain where the Basque nationalists who were, you know, on the Republican side, were, they were Catholics and they, mm. they had Catholic chaplains and so on. And the, the town of Guernica was destroyed by Nazi German bombers, you know. And it was an unarmed town. You know, it was a market town and it was, it was totally raised from the air. And actually, I mean, there was far worse things going on in truth behind the lines. But I mean, this one was publicly reported. Um, and, and things like that changed public opinion. So by the time Franco, or sorry, by the time, by the time O'Duffy's contingent came back to Ireland, which was in, in July 1937, um, public opinion in Ireland had changed. It started to see this isn't a simple thing. And it's not black and white. It's not communism against Christianity. Mm -hmm. there's, there's other things going on. It, you know, it began to appear also, I mean, there's very open aid by Mussolini and by Hitler for, for Franco. So people see, well, that's that's the real side of it as well. I mean, Basque clergy, as I said, were taken by Irish Republicans to to Ireland to to give tours and say that, you know, there's actually Catholic clergy on both sides of this war. Regarding, regarding O'Duffy's reputation among his own people, uh, you know, a lot of them, most of them, um, regarded him with great disfavour, let's say, for his, his leadership or lack of it. Mm -hmm. And when they were in Spain, I mean, when he came back to Dublin, he had marched them through Dublin City, came back into Dublin Port, but the contingents from the north 
from the north uh, and from Kerry under Eamon Horn uh, split off they wouldn't march with them they, marched, they had their own march to the train station and they said we we, we should have been a, added a glorious chapter to Ireland's military history but we turn home return home disgraced that's what Eamon, mm-hmm. Eamon Horn said y- you know so there was a, 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 there was actually a reception for O'Duffy though and, and he did march down O'Connell Street and uh, Alfie Byrne the mayor did, did receive him so but you know, there was so much for a turnout from the ordinary people to see them. I mean, there wasn't a huge turnout, but if you look at the pictures, like um, come here to me, the blog had a had a picture of this. And no. There was a significant turnout. I'm afraid to say. I'm sorry to say, but the, you know, again, I mean, however, the difference is so. Whereas there'd been a kind of a great deal of support for this kind of thing when they went out. I mean, you know, they were heckled when they came back, and there were shouts about the Republic and stuff mm. like that. Remember Bally City, yeah. which which is a dig at O'Duffy, who actually had nothing to do with the Bally City massacre, but. You know, they weren't greeted as, as returning heroes, though, not by any means. That must have been the final insult for a lot of O'Duffy's volunteers when they return back to Ireland and after everything that's happened in Spain, they see, like, a largely uh, disinterest for most of the Irish people. Yeah, you know, it's in, it's interesting because um, there's only... At, at, when the Spanish Civil War broke out, um, popular opinion in the south of Ireland certainly was overwhelmingly in favour of, of Franco. And even by the end of the Civil War... In Spain, and certainly by the end of the Second World War, you know people were would have been ashamed to say they went to fight for Franco. Certainly in public, they would. And now there's only one memorial, which is in the Pro Cathedral in Marlborough Street, to Adolfi's volunteers. But there's, you know, dozens of monuments dotted around the country to the ones who went uh, to the international brigades on the other side to fight for the Spanish Republic. So as time went on, the public opinion changed in Ireland, and the public opinion managed to forget that they never supported Franco. You know, um, and, but having said that, I mean, you know. Like, if you look at Cahill O'Shannon, made a very good documentary about this in the late 70s called Even Yellows Are Bleeding. You know, there's the ones who went for Franco, who we interviewed, weren't about to go back at it. They said, we did the right thing. We fought for Christianity against communism, and we'd do it again. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of them, in the kind of unpublished memoirs and, and letters um, that I read last year, they say the same thing. They said, you know, yeah, fascism wasn't great. Although one of them said fascism might not have been such a bad thing. And a guy called Matt Beckett said that. But a lot of them said, look, I mean, we, we thought we were doing the right thing, and, and we'd do it again. You know, and um, I met a Spanish woman who gives tours uh, related to the Civil War in Madrid. And uh, she said she got an Irish uh, visitor once. And uh, they, and they said, uh, yeah, our grandfather had this. And it's a, it's a commemorative, uh, it's a commemorative framed certificate that he got uh, with from Franco, you know, for having fought. And he said, uh, what's this about you know but I mean you know a lot of the, the volunteers were given this and a lot of them kept them up in their houses I mean I know I know a house where it's still prominently displayed actually mm-hmm. so in, in private a lot of them felt that they had done the right thing now like a lot of things I mean the Irish response to the Spanish Civil War to a degree is also a hangover from the Irish Civil War it's also about that and some of those things were actually healed in a weird way by the emergency of the Second World War in Ireland so Morris Fettel who I mentioned volunteered for the Irish Army and he served alongside people who had been in the IRA stuff presumably people who had you know fought against the blue shirts in the streets and some of them might have even gone to spain you know to fight for the other side and i i think this the emergency period might have healed some of those mm-hmm. some of those wounds to a certain extent but also i mean the 1930s is this explosive time where people think you know you have to choose sides against good and evil and, and after the second world war and um, you know that cools down a little bit and mm-hmm. there's still anti-communism is still a thing in ireland but it's you know, the tempers have cooled considerably. It's, it's not so explosive after in Ireland or anywhere else. Well, it's a decade really starts in Ireland with the uh, the uh, Eucharistic Congress. Yeah. And uh, laying the seeds for a lot of this clericalist 
anti-communism. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, as I said at the start, I mean, the the Catholic Church is really kind of flexing its muscles at the time. And if it, the Catholic Church, strange as it might seem, actually sees itself as under threat in Ireland in the late 20s and early 30s. And they use things like the Eucharist or Congress and so on to, to show that they're, they're a major social force in, in the new Irish state. And that they, they will defend themselves as they think against communists. I mean, the, the Communist Party, um, which is refounded in and around that time, the early 30s, was basically hounded out of existence. For example, um, Jimmy Gralson, you know, the organiser from Leitrim, was famously deported. He was an Irishman who was deported from his own country, but that was very much under clerical pressure. The Communist Party headquarters in, in Dublin was attacked by a mob, which was very much, again, clerically inspired. Um, a man named Nixie Bourne down in County Kilkenny who joined the Communist Party again through the IRA like many people did at the time but he tried to organise a, a communist affiliated union in the coal mines in Castle Comer, County Kilkenny and again I mean the, the bishop is sent down and they they basically won't let anyone leave the church in, uh, near Castle Comer unless they re, unless they renounce communism you know that's that's the that's the climate of the time I mean that that's the the temperature you know where the, the church is telling people you must be prepared to fight for Christ, you know, because you're under threat from the godless communism. Now, what was O'Duffy's career after this? What was his reputation like yeah, it was, in Ireland? His reputation it certainly took a battering by just the, not only failure, but like the, and participation in a bad cause, which I think it's starting to be seen up by the end of the Spanish Civil War. Um, but also like by the fiasco that it was, you know, so poorly organised, O'Duffy's part in it, O'Duffy himself played such a, a poor part in it. Um, and, you know, again, you know, his personal life also catches up with him. Like, he, he's living alone, he, uh, he's drinking heavily, um, he, he's increasingly kind of anti-Semitic and so on, uh, you know, extremist in his, in his rhetoric. Um, he doesn't have much of a public career, but one of the last things that he does is he secretly met with um, the German spy, Hermann Gurtz. So the Nazi Germany sent uh, Gurtz to uh, liaise with the IRA. Um, most of the left-wing element of the IRA had left by this point um, and so Odofi actually tried to rapprochement with the IRA in, in, during the war but Odofi met with Gortz uh, after, and uh, he put Gortz in, in touch with some of the same people who he had tried to get to Spain like Hugo McNeil uh, in, who were serving officers in the Irish army um, and all of that could have ended very badly as well but you know Gortz was arrested and nothing came of it um, but you know imagine if an Irish officer had been involved in say accepting arms clandestinely important from Germany which courts was trying to arrange you know mm -hmm. but O'Duffy died prematurely really he died he died in his 50s in 1944 uh, pretty much alone and uh, un uncelebrated well on that note uh, we should wrap up there thank you very much John that was my co-presenter there John Dorney from theirstory.com if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, please go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or follow us on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes. It really helps us and sort of bumps us up uh, on iTunes, makes more people aware of us. Uh, so thank you very much. Until next time, I'm Carl Brennan. Thank you.